our uh, text for this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. I'll be reading from the New American, uh, New RSV. So the words might be different, but just follow along. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, bless the reading of this word. May it anoint our hearts and change our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So I went, uh, I went on a vacation about a month ago, went to England for a, a week-long vacation with my daughter. There she is on the right. My wife was supposed to come, but through a cycle of events, she wasn't able to attend. So the plan was that my daughter, who is 15, and I were going to go to England the week before the wedding. Our invitation got lost in the mail, so we couldn't make the wedding. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good. Good. You'll learn as we go along. You'll learn. Massage my ego. That's it. And I was thinking, this would be great. Father-daughter trip to England, right? This would be great. And then my wife, who, who loves me but must keep her, you know, keep me under control, says, Steve, you're taking a 15-year-old to England on a vacation just the two of you. She loves you dearly, but you're 52 years old and boring. What? Boring? Well, it just so happens that one of her best friends in school, the girl on the left, Caitlin, was turning 16 the day we were scheduled to leave. This was about literally three weeks before we were leaving. And her parents, Caitlin's parents, said that they would buy a ticket for Caitlin to accompany us to England for, that, for, the, for her birthday. And I said, Fine, she's welcome to come with us. What a wonderful trip that will be. So it went from being me and Julie to, and what a boring trip for Julie, to Julie and her best friend, and the old man is coming along to pay for all the activities that we're going to do. So, you know, all right, she's really up for it. Um, from my point of view, I'm taking two 15-year-olds to Europe. You know, how am I going to keep track of them? Now, what's interesting is... Um, you cannot leave this country with someone else's child without permission. So we had to get a letter from Caitlin's parents, which said that I was authorized to bring Caitlin with us on this trip for these eight days in April to England. And they had to have that letter signed and notarized and whatnot. So we had that letter. We get to England. 
we get into the immigration line in England and we get up to the immigration officer and she's, uh, she says, may I see your passports, please? So we give her our three passports. She looks at mine, Stephen Cushing, no problem. She looks at my daughter's, Julia Cushing, no problem. She looks at Caitlin, Caitlin Manning. Face looks up and looks at me. And it was a look of, explain to me why you have this child or you're not coming into this country. And I quickly pulled out my piece of paper. Ta-da! She looked at it, saw what it said. She said, in the name of our royal majesty, welcome to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Come on in. So from that point forward, for those next eight days, as far as the government of England was concerned, Caitlin was mine. And uh, she was my responsibility. I had full authority to give her medical care if that was necessary. But as I got thinking about it more and more, I also realized that Caitlin was representing not just her family back home, but was representing me. So that if she got into trouble in England, which she would not, she's a wonderful child, but if she did get into trouble in England, it reflected on me. And then I just suddenly realized what I'd gotten myself into. I've got two 15-year-olds who are going to reflect back on me with their attitude and, and their actions in the country of England. Now, fortunately, they didn't get any trouble. I spent all of my time standing between those two pretty girls and every young male who came onto the tube at the time. Back, guys, back, back, everybody back, 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 back. Yeah, you all laugh. Wait till some of you have daughters like that, okay? If we are called to be the people of God, if we are called to be the people of God, to represent Christ, do we represent Christ out there the same way as you represent him right here. Let that sift in a little bit. And I should tell you that when I preach, I'm preaching to myself. So if I say you a lot, delete the word you and stick my name in there. I'm really not pointing my finger at you. You represent me right now. I'm preaching to myself. Do we represent Christ out there in the world as effectively and as deeply and as spiritually as we are reflecting him here right now in this worship service. What does it mean to be Christ-like, to reflect Christ out there? In here, it's easy. In here, we sing, we pray, we rejoice. We have friends who have the same belief system that we do. We can open up to each other here. We have our support system here. But then we walk through those doors, and it becomes a different world out there, doesn't it? And now your friends are scattered a little bit. You might not be with them. You're in your workplace. You're in school. You're in your home. The pressures from this outside world kind of come. You're in a foreign country. But are you still representing the church of Jesus Christ when you are out there? The depth of our walk with Christ 
That's what I want to talk about this morning. And Paul starts out his letter to the Corinthians, the second chapter, the second book of Corinthians. It's, a, it's kind of like a letter of recommendation. Corinth was a very complicated church. It lived in a very complicated city in ancient Greece. It was very much in the world and very much caught up in the world. It was a very materialistic city-state. They loved their toys, whatever toys they had back then. A stone tablet that looked like an iPad, I don't know. But whatever toys they had, they were kind of caught up in it. They had different factions. It was a very, uh, very pluralistic society, city-state. They were very proud. There were some who elevated themselves above others, even in the Christian community. We love better than you. And in the first letter, he had to kind of call them to task on some of these things. On the second letter, he's sort of reintroducing himself. And in fact, he writes at the beginning of our chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. He's talking to the Corinthians. His work is reflected in the lives of the people of the church of Corinth. And they are, in fact, his letter of recommendation to the city of Corinth, to the city-state of Corinth. It's a fascinating concept. Let's look at ourselves in the mirror this morning. Look at your life. Remember again, insert me into that, not you. I'm really not trying to condemn anyone. What I'm trying to do is exhort us all. Let's look at our life. And if I look at my life outside, that, outside these walls, is it, in fact, a letter of recommendation? Does it bear fruit? Does it reflect the love of Jesus Christ? I have a, one of my greatest faults, other than being jealous of people with hair. <laughs> you live with it, folks, all right? You know, it's just, is I have a, I have a deep, scarring anger. I have a temper about this long. My mother is Italian. It's a Mediterranean thing. I can fly off the handle, and it's never at people. I just want to put you at rest, like poor Julie. I have never touched a human being in anger. My anger is always at inanimate objects. Now, you call them inanimate objects. You just don't understand that someday the machines are going to rise up and take over the world. Someday you're all going to figure that out, and I'm going to look like the smart one instead of the paranoid schizophrenic. But there are times in my home when I go to fix something in my home and I grab a screwdriver or a hammer, my family runs because they know what's coming next. I start talking to the screwdriver and the hammer like it has this malevolent will against me. Again, someday you'll figure this all out. And when I start fixing things, everybody runs. How is that, Stephen, reflecting the image of Christ outside of the walls of the church? Well, it's not. How can God work in my life? How can God work in your life so that you are not an island surrounded by your sea of isolation, 
protecting yourself from all outside influences. How can God turn you into an icon? And I use that word in a very good sense. Because an icon has a value in a church. We often think of icons in the Orthodox Church and too many icons and whatnot. But an icon simply is a symbol that stands and represents something. These flags are icons. They represent the nation of where they come from. The cross is, in a sense, an icon. It represents the work that Jesus Christ did, his grace-saving work. You are meant to be an icon. You are meant to stand for the work of Jesus Christ that is being done in your life, but for what purpose? To what end? Paul says that with unveiled faces, we should reflect that love of Jesus Christ. There's a, I'm sure you heard of them, um, Simon and Garfunkel, folk singers from a few decades ago. Please tell me that you've heard of them. Thank you. Phew. Just had this sudden fear that everybody's going to be like, who? Uh, is that a law firm down the street? Simon and Garfunkel had a great song, one of the greatest songs of, of, uh, of, of any generation. Um, I am uh, the sounds of silence. I am a rock. I am an island. And it is the exact opposite, I think, of what, what we as Christians ought to be doing. We are reflecting not a static monument, an institution. We are reflecting the living God. And since the living God came into this world to bless those who knew him not, that is our purpose, to go into this world to reflect the living God whom the world knew not. That is our purpose. Now, those are all fancy, great words. I mean, great theology. I love, uh, brother, when you prayed, our worship leader, our singer this morning, I loved your prayer where we throw out these words of atonement and justification and salvation and heilgeschit and all that kind of stuff. You know, all these German words, it's great. But, you know, outside of a Christian cocktail party, they don't mean a whole lot in the actual everyday life of our uh, that we walk in. We need to find out what it is that we're supposed to do in this world. So I have... Um, in, in terms of any good Gordon Conwell sermon, three points. Bingo, three points, right? So everybody write down one, two, three, okay? We are called to have the same attitude of mind that Christ had. Philippians 2, 5, talking about the, uh, the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we are to have the same attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Holy cow, is that a difficult concept? It is? Why? Think about it. Empty yourself of your will. Empty yourself of the entitlement you think you have. Empty yourself of your right to peace and quiet and my own time. And I was uh, in, the, in the mission few weeks back, and we had the first visit of the Norwegian Dawn uh, cruise ship that's going to be coming into Boston every Friday. And I happened to be in our money transfer room, and, and it was a busy day, and folks were coming and going. And all of a sudden, in walked an officer. You can tell because they have the you know all whites on. And I looked closely, and this officer had four gold bars on his shoulder, which means he's the captain. Now, in the 14 years that I have been doing this, twice has the captain of a cruise ship ever come into the mission. They are too busy. They are too important. They have too much to do. 
they just don't come into the mission. Everything they need is taken care of by their, uh, by their subordinates. And I'm thinking to myself, and he gets into the MoneyGram line with all of the other seafarers, with the cooks and the cleaners and the maids and the stewards and the, the, the deck crew. Now, I know he's a busy guy, so I'm, I like, Captain. And he comes over and I said, I'm the chaplain here, what can I do for you? He said, I need to send a MoneyGram. Now, this is odd because officers can have all their money that they need sent by the company. All right? The lower ratings don't get that privilege, but he can. He can have the company do all the money, sending the money that he wants. I said, really? All right. Well, where's it going? Well, it needs to go to Nicaragua. I've never done this before. And he pulls out a piece of paper and he shows me the name of the person that he wants to send this money to. And it's going to Nicaragua. So my first evil thought was, hmm, who do you know in Nicaragua? I said, all right. I said, well, is this somebody you know? Is this for you? He said, no, no. It's for someone on board the ship. All right. Who is that? It was one of the hotel. She's sending money to her mother. All right. <laughs> Fill me in here, Captain. What's going on? Why are you doing this? Well, she's too busy and she didn't have time. And I said I'd do it for her. Okay. What universe did I just fall asleep and wake up in where the captain of a ship would take the time to help a Nicaraguan maid on board a cruise ship to send $50, five-zero, to her mother in Nicaragua? Well, I do it and I send the money and give the man, tell him what he needs to do. And he said, good, I'll, I'll go bring this to the, to the woman. I said, if there's any trouble, captain, you can just, you know, call me or send somebody back here. We'll fix it. There, there shouldn't be any trouble. And he leaves. And I see him shake the hands of a few other seafarers on his way out who greeted him with, 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 with a lot of friendship. And so one other guy that was in the room after the captain left, I called him over. I said, fill me in here, all right? The rest of the story. Give me the background. He said, that's the way this captain is. He gets his job done, but he cares for his crew. And he doesn't lord it over the crew that he's the captain. He saw a need. He could have easily appointed to anybody on the ship and said, go do this. But he didn't. He took it upon himself to send $50 for a cleaning lady to her mother in Nicaragua. Christ, though he was equal with God and could have said at any point, no, I don't want to go, did not count that equality with God as anything to hang on to, to grasp to set a priority or an agenda. I mean, he was God, but he emptied himself and came into this world to bless you and I. The attitude that I do not have any right, I do not have any authority to lord it over anyone, that if Christ emptied himself, so shall I in whatever venue I happen to be, with whoever God brings across my path, to lose the attitude of entitlement and to take on the attitude of servanthood. The second way that we show this is through humility. John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, 
I was, I was saved. Um, I grew up in a Lutheran church. I always knew God. I, I loved God, and I went to Sunday school, and I went to confirmation, and yada, yada, yada. But I actually came into a personal encounter with Jesus Christ in a, in a Pentecostal charismatic home group. And if nothing else, the Pentecostal charismatics love to do all sorts of stuff to demonstrate their faith, right? Singing in tongues and praying and, and healing people and slaying people and, you know, the whole thing, which I think is just marvelous. I'm not ridiculing it. Um, foot washing is a big thing, was a big thing. And we would have these foot washing services. And I'd just always be like, oh, gosh, no, not again. Uh, washing people's feet. But we did it because, you know, this was an outward demonstration of an inward grace. Huh? And so, you know, we'd wash people's feet. I don't think what this is, that's what's going on here. Because if I said to you, we're going to have a foot washing service right now, some of you might freak out a little bit. Some of you might even run. But basically, you'd kind of do it because, why? Well, all right, it's a spiritual exercise for discipline inside a church. That's cool. I get it, right? What, it, what the writer is trying to get across here is that if I, then the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, if I did unto you what only a slave does, it's not washing feet, per se. It is the job that is normally reserved for those who are slaves. It is doing that thing in someone else's life that no one else expects you to do, but you will take it up because it shows love and servanthood and mercy and compassion. I was in the, we had a cruise ship yesterday, Mazdam. Busy day, it was a good day. The end of the day, I went home. It's kind of tired. And at about 6 o'clock at night, I realized that I had left my computer back at the mission. And it happened to have all my notes for this here sermon back at the mission. And I'm like, oh, tell me I have to go back into Boston and do this again, please. And so I tried. I thought maybe it's, uh, maybe it's here. Maybe I send it to myself an email. No, ah, we have remote access now at the mission. Maybe I can log into a computer at the mission and do remote access. No, this happened to be the one day that I turned every computer in the mission off, saving electricity. <laughs> We don't even pay the electricity at the mission. The mass board does. I don't know why I did that. I had no choice but to drive back into Boston and pick up that computer. So I drive back in. Now, the cruise ship terminal, when a ship is in, is a busy place. There are two, there are two huge buildings side by side. We're Army, where, uh, Army base back in the 40s and 50s. And one of them is a cruise ship terminal. When the ship is in, it's full of activity. There's passengers and taxis and buses and this and the mission and the seafarers. It's just bustling with activity. When the ship is gone, the place empties out. It's a ghost town. And Saturday night at 6.30, there was no ship in sight. It was a ghost town. There was me and two pigeons. I go in the mission. I grab my computer. I'm coming down the steps, walking out, and I hear from outside the door in the mission area, the concourse, I hear a voice, a woman's voice. Is anybody there? I don't know. Who, who does that? What is that all about? And she kept yelling, is anybody there? Is anybody there? And she was kind of in the distance. She wasn't right outside my door. Well, I knew what it was. <clears throat> I, I, I had a strong suspicion. It was a passenger who missed the ship. And so I'm standing at our door with my hand on the handle, saying, I don't want to deal with this. I need to get home. I have a birthday party dinner I have to go to. I have to be in Peabody at 8 o'clock. I don't have time for this. Do I need to tell you what God said to me at that very moment? 
I opened the door, went outside. And about 50 yards away, there was a taxi cab. There was a taxi driver standing outside with an older woman, probably 75 years old, very well dressed. And I look over there and I shut the door and I start to walk to my car. Maybe they won't see me. And I look over and I see the taxi driver pointing at me. Thanks, pal. Really appreciate that. And this woman comes walking over. Oh, sir, can you help me? Now, the look that I had on my face could kill. And I felt it. And I was flat out ashamed of myself for that look on my face. It was a look that said, what do you want? And I'm apologizing to you and to the church and to my, my fellow minister. It was not a look that I should have had as a Christian, as a minister of the gospel, as just a human being. But it was there for me. And she started to tell me her story. We were delayed in Chicago. Yeah, no kidding. Everybody's delayed in Chicago. Plane broke down. They just got here about five minutes ago. They came over by taxi. The ship left you know, an hour and a half before. They were supposed to be on that ship. What do I do? And I said, I don't know what you're going to do. Picture, deserted. Deserted. So I pull out the cell phone and I start making some phone calls for it. Well, let's call Massport Police. Let's call it. Finally, we just kind of, I said, everybody's saying the same thing here. You're going to need to find a way to get yourself from Boston to Bar Harbor, Maine, because that's the next port, which is today, where that ship is going to show up. And you need to be in Bar Harbor so you can get onto the ship then. So she starts showing me her itinerary, and I look, and at the top I see, on the top of this itinerary for her wonderful vacation, church resources investment or something. I said, are you with a group? She said, oh, yes, it's a large group of us, my husband and I. Um, are, are, are with this group. She said, I'm just so thankful that you're here, sonny boy. <laughs> Gives you an idea how old she was. She said, I was praying that somebody would be here to help me. Oy. She said, what are you doing here? Okay, now I can either cover my tracks and say that I'm the cleaning guy or just flat out fess up. I'm the minister here at the Seafarers Mission. You are? My, my husband and I have been praying. We're from Kansas. We're Baptists. I was ordained a Baptist, by the way. She said, God has brought you. I had no idea what I was going to do, and I was just praying. Please, God, bring somebody here who can give direction to us right now. And you walked out that door. Long and the short of it is, I gave her, oh, this is amazing. I don't even know how this happened. I said, dear, this is what you're going to do. Tell the taxi to bring you back to the airport. I'm not sure who flies to Bar Harbor, Maine. I don't know if anybody flies to Bar Harbor, Maine. I don't even know where Bar Harbor, Maine is. But you need to go to the airport, walk up to a, go into a terminal, go to Terminal B. I don't know why I'm saying this, all right? I have, tell me, I have no idea why I'm saying these very words. Go to Terminal B and walk up to a counter. Um, walk up to U.S. Air Counter and just say, 
who goes to Bar Harbor? Does anybody go to Bar Harbor, Maine? And if they don't, they'll tell you somebody who will, all right? And then you'll probably have to spend the night here in Boston, but you'll probably be able to fly out maybe tonight or maybe tomorrow. And inside, I'm thinking, fat chance. You have no chance of doing this, right? And But at least you'll be at the airport because worst case scenario, you may have to fly back home to Kansas tonight. You just might not be. Because the next ship stop after Bar Harbor, Maine was way up in Newfoundland. And if there's anything more obscure than Bar Harbor, Maine, it's the entire island of Newfoundland. She said, you have been such a help. I said, let me pray for you, dear. So I prayed for her, prayed for the rest of their trip. And then she prayed for me and put me to shame. I go home. I tell my wife what happened. And I say, hmm. And I go on the Internet and I go to kayak.com. Type in, leave Boston Sunday. Arrive Bar Harbor, Maine. Oh, Bar Harbor has an airport. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? Guess who is the only airline who flies into Bar Harbor, Maine? U.S. Air. And there was a flight out at 9 o'clock this morning. Gets in at 10.30. I didn't want to wash your feet. All I could think was I need to get home. All I could think of was the birthday party for my nephew that we had to be at. But God knew that that woman needed help, and he needed to help that woman, and he needed to help me. He needed to help her get on board that, because who knows what church resources investment does. I think what they do is invest in churches who are expanding and growing and building new buildings. Right? How evil is that? I don't think so. So she needed to be on that ship and to be able to bless churches all over the country. I needed to be blessed to lose the attitude that I had that I was entitled to my private time on Saturday night and nobody should interfere with it. Be careful what you pray for because sometimes you get it. Finally, we are called to a ministry of love, a ministry of aromatic love. I'll explain what I mean in that in a minute. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You ever thought about yourself as a fragrant aroma? I mean, other than, you know. I have problems in sinuses, and for the last 10 years, I have not been able to have a sense of smell. I cannot smell anything. It comes in real handy on subways and subway stations when you don't want to smell anything down there. But life is very thin without a sense of smell. Life is thin without a, any one of your senses. Yes, there are other ways you develop. I have developed an incredible sense of eating to compensate for my lack of smell. But it's amazing what this world is like without an aroma. Five years ago, I went for surgery to fix the problem. And he said, this will last for about a year. You will be able to have your sense of smell back for about a year. And he was right. And I went into the hospital and had the surgery on my sinuses. And I came out that night. It was a beautiful June afternoon. The sun was shining. And I walked outside. And I took a deep breath. And I don't know if you all remember, but air has a smell. Springtime has a smell. 
June has an aroma. It is a smell that just made me happy. It made me full of joy. And for the rest of that year, I would just walk around and I'd stop by the cupboard and open up and take out the peanut butter and unscrew the top and smell peanut butter. And I would open up the coffee can and just smell coffee grounds. Do you know how great a smell that is? You are a fragrant aroma. Your sacrifice of love and mercy should rise up like the smell of coffee grounds, not only to God, but to those whom you are blessing. And you make their life less thin. You make their life full and recapture. You offer the aroma of heaven when you bless people with your act of service. When you represent the kingdom of God, outside these walls. You are the aroma of God. And people are blessed by that. How long must we put up with this funny little life? I don't know. I don't know how long we're all here on this earth. You're a very young crowd. That's a blessing to me. So maybe you're not thinking about your own mortality or how long you have. I'm not that old. I mean, I'm 52. It's not that old, is it? But you get tired, don't you? And Paul says, don't despair. Don't grow weary of doing good. But be an encouragement. You are an icon. Through your acts of attitude and servanthood, through your fragrant offering of sacrifice, you bless people and you bless the heart of God. Listen to what is written in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just listen to this. It's not here. Just listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Cornerstone Church in Boston. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's the world we're living in today. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I don't believe that those words are written just to ordained ministers 
Those words are written to the rank and file members of the church of Jesus Christ. For you are a holy priesthood, a royal nation. God has given you every good gift that he needs you to have to do his work in this world. And I don't know what that gift is, but do it losing your attitude of entitlement and empty yourself. Do it with the attitude of servanthood and blessing others when it's a job that you just don't want to do. And do it as a sacrifice and a fragrant offering unto God. For he will be blessed by you. For as much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, Christ says you have done it unto me. You and I are icons sent out with a purpose and the gospel. You are the gospel. Your life is the gospel. You have been saved through grace by faith, and you have been charged to give that message to the world who needs help. And it's not just in words, but it's in action. If there is a God of mercy and love, why does he let there be so much pain in this world? Because he has sent us, his servants, into this world to alleviate that pain. And when the church ignores it, we're ignoring the charge that God has given us. You are the good news to this world through your life, through your ministry, through your face, through your aroma. You and I are charged to be the icons, the representation of Jesus Christ here on this earth. The letter of recommendation to the world. It has been signed and paid for by Jesus Christ. I get a chance to do that quite often when I go on board ships and when I visit with crew members. When Christ and when I listen reminds me of that opportunity he had. That to the nations I get to show the church in love of you. And you get a chance to do that when you volunteer at the mission, but you also get a chance to do that wherever you are. The second you walk out that door, God is at work bringing an old lady and an old man stuck on a plane in a deserted terminal across your path so that you can bless them and so they can bless you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.